Welcome uh, to this new study on um, what's called the outworking of God's plan. Let me just show you where we're going here. I have a an overview of the whole class. I probably should put some of these out here. This is actually for the entire uh, spiritual success course. We started this back in the fall of 2009. And it's taken us through some fundamentals of Christianity. We had several classes on that about membership and evangelism and um, life as a believer and so on. Uh, then we moved to Bible Overview, which is where we, we um, recently came from, where we took a survey of the entire Bible and we also, um, we also talked about how to study the Bible. We went through each of the books there. And then we just started into this correlating God's truth category, which includes church history. So we finished the 13-week class on church history. And now we're moving to the next part of that, and that is um, the outworking of God's revelation. This is basically a class that teaches us how to have the right kind of grid to interpret the Scriptures. Okay, we talked about how to study the Bible, but this gives us a specific way as to how we should interpret um, the Scriptures. And it's called dispensationalism, as you see on your handout there in front of you, or the outworking of God's revelation. All right, so that's where we're going to be going today. And uh, as soon as I get my notes here ready, we can begin. Let me um, have a word of prayer and we'll ask for God's help as we do this. Father, we're thankful that You have revealed Yourself, that You have not left us without Your Word, but that You gladly um, showed Yourself to us in many times, in many ways, through visions in the past and dreams and uh, personal appearances. And now, most notably, we see You through Your Word. And the Word is really Jesus Christ and His manifestation on this earth and the reflection on what He did and what He means for us. And so we're thankful that You have given us Your revelation. And we ask that You'd help us to understand it rightly and to be able to apply it to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm uh, leaning heavily on these two books here, and I would recommend one of them, and if you really like to study another. This one here is called... Um, there Really Is a Difference by Renald Showers. There Really Is a Difference by Renald Showers. And uh, it's on the back of your handout. You don't have to necessarily write that down. It's called A Comparison of Covenant Theology and Dispensational Theology. And it's written in, in uh, fairly, um, fairly basic terms. Okay? It doesn't get into a lot of deep verbiage and things. It explains things very well. And so I'd encourage you, if you want to study more on this, to, to look at this book. Uh, and the one other nice part about it is it has fairly big words and small pages. That makes it easy. I don't think there are any pictures, though. So, Sorry about that, Mike. No coloring pages or anything. The other book is uh, called Dispensationalism, and this is the, the one that's used uh, on a deeper level to teach this topic. This is by Charles Ryrie. Heard of the Ryrie Study Bible? Okay, this is, this is this man from the early 1900s. And this would be the best work on it, but it's very deep. So, if you want a deeper study on it, 
want to understand. He, he, he fairly talks about both positions. We'll talk about what those are. But these are the two books that I'm leaning on as we go through this class. Turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Now, there are at least two, there are at least two clues to what this class is about based on its title, Outworking of God's Revelation. One is, based on the word revelation there at the end, is that God has specific content that He is revealing to us. Okay, so that's the first clue. The second clue we get from the name of the class, the outworking of, tells us that that content is given uh, as a program, as is given over time. It's the outworking of. It's not the explosion of God's revelation. It's not all one time in one way. It's gradually given over time. And that's what we're going to learn uh, as we study through this class called the outworking of God's revelation or dispensationalism. All right? And Hebrews chapter 1, I think, gives us the best, the best uh, idea that this is, this is how God reveals Himself. He, give, he does it in different ways in different times. Look at verse 1. Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world. Okay, so look at verse 1 again. He spoke long ago. Okay, that's we could put in that, instead of spoke, the idea of revelation. Morning. The idea of revelation. So God revealed Himself long ago and many times in many ways. What kind of ways were they? Okay, I mentioned a couple uh, earlier. Obviously, we have visions and dreams and prophecies. Okay, personal appearances where you have uh, the, the pre-incarnate Christ coming. Uh, like we've been seeing in Genesis chapter 18, where he visits Abraham and so on. Okay, so what we're going to to come to understand is that God does reveal Himself in different ways, and based on that, we that should uh, that deter, should determine how we look at the Bible. Our grid for interpretation should determine how we look at it. So don't get scared away by the big word there uh, there on the screen, dispensationalism. Okay, because I want to uh, I want to begin. We're not going to be able to do a whole overview of dispensationalism today, but I want to just uh, whet your appetite a little bit, give you a little bit of of where we're going. Ever since the fall, humans have doomed themselves to a restless search for real meaning in life. They've tried to understand what is the real meaning of life. So if we thought about it in the form of questions we would say things like, where did we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? Okay, And I'm not just talking about believers here. I'm talking about every person has in some way asked this type of question. What is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? And these are not new questions. That's why I said it's, it's really... Since the fall, people have been asking these types of questions. For example, um, let me just uh, get through these two. God has a program for revealing Himself. I talked about that. And then also, um, 
God reveals Himself in different times in different ways. You've seen that. But let me give you an example a little bit behind here. Uh, Plato. Plato was a philosopher who tried to define the meaning of life by gaining a higher knowledge. Remember? He thought that there was a, a stark difference between the body and the soul. He thought that the body was was inherently evil, but the soul was good. And so it really didn't matter what you do in your body. That's what's called Platonic dualism. All you need to think about there is dualism. He thinks of two spheres of life. Our body, corrupt, does lots of evil things. We can't help it. Our soul, good. And, uh, and that's all you have to do. You have to just make sure that your soul is reaching a higher knowledge. Aristotle tried to find the meaning of life uh, through happiness. What types of things can, can I do to make me happy? And he encouraged other people to do the same. There's another um, idea that came up uh, called cynicism. It believes that the meaning of life has to do with being self-sufficient. That I am self-sufficient. That, that I can uh, take care of my own needs. I don't, know, need anyone, I don't need any other person outside of myself. I don't need any other heavenly being to take care of myself. Cynicism. And then there's the Epicureans. They believed that the highest good was to attain, to attain modest pleasures. And they didn't believe in the afterlife. They, uh, they, they thought that this was all that life had to offer. So, as the Scriptures say, I think in Ecclesiastes, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And then there were the Stoics. And they thought that the highest good in life was to be free from suffering. So, all we have to worry about is, is making sure that we're comfortable. Suffering is a bad thing. Let's get rid of that as best we can. And then you had the Enlightenment philosophy, which led people to believe that seeking personal freedoms was most important. Okay, Again, self-sufficiency. I want to make sure that I have my rights and my rights are, are, um, are used. And then there was a, uh, utilitarianism. And this still is in operation today in many ways. They believe that the highest good is the thing that brings the most satisfaction to the most amount of people. Okay, so this is very dangerous philosophy, by the way. If Hitler had his way, his idea of happiness would have pervaded the entire world. And for him, that was the idea of happiness. So let's get rid of all these, uh, these people who are impure and make sure we have a pure race. That will really bring happiness. Okay, there's all sorts of ways that utilitarianism is played out. And then um, there's nihilism. believes that there's no meaning to life. Because there is no God. So, there is no meaning to life. It's just a bunch of random atoms bouncing up against each other and we just try to make do, right? Then, one that's very prevalent in our day is called humanism. Believes that the knowledge of God, or that, that true knowledge comes not from God, but from human reasoning. It comes from just observation. So, these people are very steeped in science which science is not a bad thing, but it can be if you exclude God from it and uh, have to be aware of a, of a pursuit of knowledge that excludes God. And humanism does that. You see that in a lot of the public schools even today. And then one that's uh, what, which our society is actually labeled by is postmodern society. It seeks meaning by trying to undermine all the other philosophies. It's very... Uh, relativistic. In other words, 
Um, well, you have your own opinion on that. Okay, I, I don't agree with you on that. I don't have to agree with you on that. Okay, that's your idea. And so they, they undercut every, every other philosophy without arguing against it. And uh, it's hard to, it's hard to uh, see straight with these type of people. Then there's absurdism. Believes that nothing makes sense at all. That belief is, or that life is made up of just coincidences. Very much like nihilism. Alright, and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of other philosophies that, have, that people have tried to develop in order to understand the meaning of life. Alright? Alright, now repeat all those back to me and tell me what they all mean, would you? No, I'm just, I'm just giving you examples. Um, even Pilate. Pilate said, uh, what is truth? Like you have at the top of your handout. What is truth? I mean, people are always trying to find what the meaning of life is. And all the attempts to understand what the meaning of life could be labeled or put under a category called philosophy of history, okay, or the study of history. How 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 do how can we know why where we have come from? History, okay, why we're here and where we're we going. How do we tie all these things together? So what a philosophy of history seeks to do is it gives us a systematic. Let me go back one here. Systematic interpretation of universal history in accordance with principle by which historical events and successions are unified and directed toward ultimate meaning. Okay, so look at the end of that, that definition there. They're trying to pursue what? Ultimate meaning of life. So it tries to, to, to have a systematic interpretation of events. Why has all these things happened? Why have all these things happened? And how can we unify them together? And so it has at least four characteristics in the philosophy of history. One is a systematic interpretation of history. In other, in other words, it explains why history is what it is. The why of history. Secondly, whoops, I skipped ahead. Sorry about that. Um, getting a little button happy. Um, it covers the whole scope of history. Okay, so it doesn't just cover one one spot. So if we had a timeline here, I keep doing this with my arms, but if we have a timeline here of the beginning of time to the end of time, the philosophy of history would not just cover one segment, like our lifetime. That's not a philosophy of history. That's a philosophy of our life, the meaning of our life specifically. But we want to we want to be able to interpret all of history in one unified whole. And so the next part is that it unifies history into one cohesive unit. It's one unit. You're able to make sense of the whole thing all put together. And then finally, it assigns ultimate meaning to history. That history is not just a bunch of random things happening like nihilism talks about, but it is. it has an ultimate goal. It's going somewhere. It started for a purpose and it will end for a purpose. And... Um, and that, so that kind of explains the past of history, the present of history, and the future of what will be history. All right, so we could search all over the globe to try to find what this is, what this meaning of life is. We could search in the stars, we could search in caves, we could go to the ocean floors, try to find the meaning of life, and people do that all the time. But we're not going to be able to find the meaning of life in those places. Because God has revealed 
the meaning of life in one place. And, of course, you know what that is and where we're leading to, and that is the Bible. You see, the Bible meets all four criterion for a philosophy of history. It offers a systematic interpretation of history. It gives you a, a systematic approach to why history is what it is. It also covers the entire scope. It doesn't just take one sliver and say, this is what happened in uh, you know, 4 B.C. or 30 A.D., A.D. 30 when Jesus was around. It doesn't just take those slivers. It, it gives you the whole scope of history. It also unifies them into one purpose. And that's one of the things that we're going to endeavor to do. We're going to try to find out what is the purpose of life. What is the meaning of life? How do we, how do we bring all these things together? And then finally, uh, the Bible leads us to an ultimate goal. It leads us to a final goal. That the history is going somewhere. And so, because the Bible is the Word from the Creator, God, it has ultimate authority. And that's why science may help to support what the Bible says, but it doesn't actually inform what the Bible says. Okay? The, the Bible may, uh, or the science may give us evidence or searching all these different places like I was talking about, philosophy, these types of things. They may support what the Bible says, but the ultimate authority comes from the Bible and therefore it must be relied upon. Now, when we go to the Scriptures, we go to the, the Scriptures with that question, what is the meaning of life? Where have we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? If we go to the Scripture with those types of questions, uh, I think if we're, if we're carefully observing, we'll be able to find the answer to those. But what's readily apparent, I think this is in your handout here, is that, um, is that Scripture has distinctions. Okay, and I'm just going to have to give these to you because I don't think I, I have these on the, the presentation up, up here. So, First of all, there are distinctions. What, what are the two main distinctions of the Bible? How do we separate the Bible? The Old and the New Testaments. Okay, So that's your first blank. Old and New Testaments. So we recognize that there are distinctions. That there, there are distinctions between the Old and New. Remember, we're trying to, trying to unify these things, trying to understand how God has revealed Himself. Secondly, we see a distinction in Christ giving His two distinct commissions commissions to the disciples. In Matthew chapter 10, he says, go and preach to the lost sheep of Israel. Do not preach to the Gentiles. Okay, At that time, the kingdom was still available to the people on the earth. And so Jesus says, go to the Jews, not to the Gentiles. But in Matthew 28, he says, he says uh, make disciples of whom? All nations. Okay, not just the Jewish nation, not just the, the nation of Israel, but all nations. So you have a distinction there of Christ's commissions. Thirdly, dealing with adultery. What, were, what was the uh, consequence for adultery in Leviticus 20? Death, right? You kill a person who commits adultery. But in 1 Corinthians 6, it actually says that such were some of you. And no longer has that law uh, remained in effect that we don't kill people for adultery. Uh, they actually have an opportunity to to live and to to serve Christ. And uh, in fact, that's what was happening in the early church. And then dealing with dietary laws or laws of diet. Now, you remember before 
the flood that mankind was vegetarian. There was no eating of the flesh. But then, uh, but then afterwards, um, then God said to Noah, you can't eat flesh. Later on, He would specify what kind of meat they could eat, right? There were clean animals and there were unclean animals. And then, of course, you know in the New Testament, in our age, church age, those were all done away with. Jesus says it's not what comes in the body that defiles you, but it's what comes out of the heart. Okay, so so dietary laws were set apart to show that you were different. They weren't. There's nothing. Um, there's nothing nutritional necessarily about eating different types of animals compared to others. And so you have these distinctions. All I'm doing there is I'm just trying to give you examples in the scriptures that there are distinctions. Okay, so we have to acknowledge that. We can't say that the Old Testament is just like the New Testament. Okay, and I, most people that study the scriptures. Um, do not uh, acknowledge that. They recognize that there are distinctions. I just want to point that out to you. So, what that leads us to is two basic approaches. Okay, And I say biblical approaches here because they are biblical. Both of these, these pursuits of the meaning of life are, are biblical approaches. These are people who are trying to understand the Bible rightly. They're trying to make sure that their grid is right. So what we have to be careful about is taking one over the other and saying the other group are a bunch of heathens. Okay, That's not the case. That's not what I'm arguing for in this class. And uh, you'll come to see that, that I, I, uh, I think we should interpret the Scripture based on dispensational theology. That God has a program, and I'll show you why uh, as we go through. All right. Any questions so far? This is mostly introduction. Introduction. All right. We'll we'll get into some some of this as we go. Now I want to give you a brief overview of covenant theology. We'll take a whole class to talk about this um, as we go. But I want to give you a brief overview of covenant theology, and we could give it a definition. All right. Covenant theology is a system of theology which attempts to develop the Bible's philosophy of history on the basis of two or three covenants. Okay, it attempts to do this. So, remember, what's our purpose? What's the, what's the question? What's the main question we're trying to answer here? What is the meaning of life? Okay, and what I'm trying to suggest to you is that there are two basic biblical ways that we can go about it. This is the first one. This is a covenant theology. They try to bring all of history together into one type of systematic approach, one system. And uh, they break it down into two or three covenants. Um, all right. The, uh, the idea of covenant theology came around uh, the, 1600, the 1500s. Excuse me. Um, you're not going to find any discussion of this um, you're not going to find any discussion of this with regard to the reformers or even before that in the early church leaders. Okay, it's it's a fairly new idea. That doesn't make make it evil or wrong uh, because dispensational theology came around uh, later as well. But it was introduced into American Christianity in the 1800s through people like Charles Hodge, who was a leading university professor, Herman Bovink, and Abraham Kuyper. 
And most covenant theologians believe that it can be broken down into three covenants. So that's what we're going to talk about. Some of them only see two two covenants, but most uh, see three. And you probably already started filling in your blanks here. The first one is called the covenant of redemption. And that's the covenant between the Father, God the Father, and God the Son, where God said that, Christ, you are going to be the Redeemer of the, of the people of this earth. And He was going to give them certain people to, to redeem. And so, in turn, the Son agreed to take the place of them by offering Himself as a sacrifice. This is the way covenant theologians see this first uh, distinction. Okay, So, they, they do see distinctions. I'm not arguing that they don't. Um, their first one is called the covenant of redemption. The second is called the covenant of works which is the covenant between God and Abraham, or, or excuse me, God and Adam. This is where God required perfect obedience and uh, God put him on probation to see if he would obey. And how did he do? Okay, he failed. He did okay for a certain period of time. It's not clear how long, but, but he did okay for a while and then he disobeyed. So since he broke the covenant, God had to establish a new covenant and this is what they call the third covenant of grace. And this is between God and His chosen ones. And this began at the time of Adam's fall. Okay, So this is where God promises salvation through faith in Christ. Where would God have promised salvation through? Let's think back to Genesis 3.15. After the fall, God comes and tells them what's going to be the curses that come as a result of their sin. And what does He say to the serpent? Remember? Okay, right. Okay, you're going to slither on the ground, but the the one that I'm thinking about is that he, his 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 uh, head will be crushed. He's going to bruise the heel of one of Eve's seed, one of her descendants, Christ, and 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 Satan would bruise Christ's heel. Okay, so there's there's where they see the promise of redemption through a savior. That's the first indication that we have of a savior. I would totally agree that that is a promise of a Savior. Uh, however, in this, this third covenant, they say that it, does, that, um, that it includes the elect, in other words, those who have been chosen to be saved, but also the children of the elect. So what God is doing is not making a covenant with every single person who has ever lived and ever will live, but only the ones who will be believers. Do you understand the difference? There's lots of people who have ever lived. There's only one, probably few, like Jesus says, only few there will be who find it. So, so what covenant theology does is it focuses on those who will believe. Now, it does extend it to children of believers. It says that uh, this covenant that God's making between these believers, God and these believers, also extends to the children of believers, whether they're believers or not. Okay, so that's why you have a lot of the people that believe in covenant theology you're going to find in Presbyterian type churches. And what kind of activity goes on when a child is very young at a Presbyterian church? Infant baptism, right? And they see this as a an initiatory rite. They they say that God is making a covenant with this person even though he may not be a believer. You see the potential problems 
and that sort of mentality. Okay, we'll, we'll unfold that a little bit more as we go. Um, and uh, part of the reasoning for their argument, by the way, why they, why they think this covenant extends all the way back to Adam. Now, uh, we recognize a connection. Okay, I'm, When I say we, I'm talking about those who believe in dispensational theology. We recognize that we have a connection to Abraham, or I mean to Adam, excuse me. We recognize that there's that through his sin we are sinners. And through his death, because of the consequences that come from his sin, we also receive death. We recognize that connection. But we don't recognize it in the same way as covenant theologians recognize it. They see that that Christ's covenant extends all the way back to Adam, the people of Israel. And uh, I think that will become more clear here as I I explain a few more things. Let me talk about some pros and cons, okay? Some commendable features about covenant theology. Again, we're talking about fellow believers, okay? So don't just dismiss these people as heretics and people who are headed to the pit of hell. That's not... That's not what's going on here. Covenant theologians are well-meaning people who desire to understand the Scriptures, the meaning of life, in a right uh, grid, with a right grid. Okay, the first pro is that they have an emphasis on God's grace. They have an emphasis on God's grace, that we are in need of God's grace. They, they recognize that. They see that in history. And they see that that's where history is leading. They also have an emphasis on the redemption of Christ on the redemption of Christ. And uh, you see these here in your handout at the top of the third page. And then salvation by grace through faith. Okay, So again, that's why I say we're talking about believers. They don't have a different gospel. They're talking about the same gospel, just a different way to interpret the Scriptures. But there are some problems with their theology. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Let me Before I get there, the second thing that they... Uh, the second commendable feature is that they see Jesus as the central figure in all of history. Isn't that what Jesus said in Luke 24 when he's, talk, when he's walking on the road to Emmaus? Okay. He says to them, then, I, then, he, then Jesus, Luke says, then Jesus opened the Scriptures and showed to them uh, Himself from the Scriptures. Speaking of the, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. The Old Testament Scriptures. And... Uh, and so Jesus is the central figure of history. And they also seek to be faithful to the Scripture. They see the Bible as the final authority. Okay, they, they're not looking to humanistic law or, or you know, a lot of these Platonic ideas or Arist- Aristotelian ideas. Aristotelian. Um, they're looking to the Scriptures as their final authority. All right, so let's look at some cons, some problems with covenant theology. First, is I believe that their their um, understanding of the ultimate goal is too narrow, too narrow. Remember, what's the purpose, or what what's a good philosophy of history supposed to include? It's supposed to include all of it, the entire scope of history, from the time that time began to the time that time ends. It's supposed to include all of it. But what covenant theologians do is they put an emphasis on... In fact, they say their ultimate goal is for Christ to redeem His people. They say that's the ultimate goal. But that doesn't include all of time, does it? Because there was a time before Christ was redeeming His people. Or we could even say before God was redeeming His people. 
Right? What about the pre-fall era? What was God's purpose in that era from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2? Was it to bring about redemption? Or was there another purpose? And I'm going to argue that there was another purpose. What about God's purpose for rulers? What about God's purpose for Satan? What about God's purpose for nature? Animals? Trees? What, what is His purpose in all this? Can we say that it has to do with redemption? Uh, what about God's purpose in eternity past? What about before He even created anything? Was it always about redemption? Or was there another purpose? Alright, so that's, uh, that's why I say it's too narrow. We'll talk about what, um, how much broader it can be in the uh, dispensational understanding of it. The second problem is that it denies a distinction between Israel and the church. It denies a distinction between Israel and the church. Here's one of the key features of covenant theology. And that is that they believe Israel and the church are one and the same. Okay, so the promises that were given to Israel in the Old Testament are also promises for the church. Okay, the laws given for Old Testament Israel, they're adjusted a little bit, but they're basically for the church. Because remember, their third covenant began when? They had the, the covenant between God and the Son, then they had the covenant between God and Adam. Remember, Adam disobeyed. What was their third covenant about? You remember? Covenant of redemption, which is between God and the elect, or God and believers. All right, so they go all the way back here, and that's why they say, this is the church, starting with Adam. Genesis chapter 3. So anything in the Old Testament is all for the church. All right, and certainly we can gain value from the Old Testament. Um, I'm not arguing that, but, but they, they tend to over-spiritualize uh, Old Testament truth, make it applicable for or applicable is not a right word, um, make it intended for the church. As if when God was writing to, uh, when God was writing to, to David about building the temple and Solomon about building the temple, that was in some way meaningful for the church or intended for the church. And um, so I, I, uh, I disagree with this type of understanding. If the church was in the Old Testament, then why did Jesus announce in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, I will build my church? Why didn't he say, I have been building my church? Okay, that's why I think we should see a distinction, at least, at the very least, between Israel and the church. And uh, we, we could further say, why doesn't the church begin until after Jesus is gone? Until the day of Pentecost. Why doesn't the church begin until then? All right, so there's a second problem with I see with covenant theology. The third one is they use a double system of interpretation. Remember, this is part of how we we have a grid to ter- interpret the scriptures. If for example, as an unbeliever when they go to the scriptures, they have a certain grid, a certain worldview, or you could think about it like glasses, right? They have a certain set of lenses by which they view the Scriptures. And that's why they come up with all these things like cynicism, like that can't be true, or the, the, the humanism, or the postmodernism where they undercut everything that's in the Bible. Well, that may be true for them. It's not true for me. 
no absolute truth, that sort of thing. Well, when we go to the Scriptures, we also have a system of interpretation. We also have a set of lenses by which we view the Scriptures. And we want to make sure that that's the most accurate. What I'm saying about covenant theology is that they actually use a double system of interpretation. They try to understand the Bible in its context and cases. That's true. But when they come to prophecies primarily, they, they give double meanings to them. So it had one meaning for Israel and it has another meaning for us. Okay, And if you're familiar with our study of how to study the Bible this several months ago, we talked about this and we said that words can only have one meaning and one context. Okay, Think about that for a second. Uh, for example, if I say, I am not a fan of the saints. Okay, I'm not saying, you don't understand me to say, that I don't like to, to use a cooling device uh, to, to put on believers. You understand me to mean that I don't like the New York or the, New, the National Football League New Orleans Saints. I'm not a fan of them. See, there's lots of words in there that you just automatically interpret it because you understand the context in which I'm speaking. Fan, you understand I'm talking about a, a follower, a, a supporter of. Saints, you understood as a specific football team, right? Um, and so we automatically interpret these things. The problem is when we go to the Scriptures, we are removed from their culture by thousands of miles, right? This didn't happen in the United States. And we're also removed by thousands of years. The most recent, uh, the ro- most recent writing was the Revelation, the book of Revelation, which was around A.D. 95. So we're th- a couple thousand years removed nearly from, from there. But what covenant theology does is it makes two meanings in many cases to what the Bible says. Okay, So I'm saying, when I said I'm not a fan of the saints, you, you understood one meaning. That I'm not trying to say more than one thing. I'm just trying to say one thing. And what they're saying is that the Scriptures, especially with prophecies, uh, have two meanings. All right. So, what about dispensational theology? What about their philosophy of history? That's where we want to go. And, and the reason I'm not giving much time to this today is because we'll spend uh, more time on this in the coming weeks. All right. Help or heresy. Okay, I, I gave you a couple quotes from the opponents of dispensational theology, and I'll let you read those. I'm not going to spend uh, any time on that. I need to. I need to move on. Okay, why could it? Why can it be a help? Number one, it answers the need of biblical distinctions. Okay, again, we have to have biblical distinctions. We have to understand that God has written in many times in many ways. Now, covenant theology does this as well, but there are parts that are missing. And so what dispensational theology does is it tries to bring them into all one cohesive unit. And it sees as its goal not the salvation of believers, although that is a part of it, but rather the consummation of God's glory in the kingdom. Okay, If we want to just put it under one umbrella, we could say God's glory. Okay, That will finally be consummated in the, the millennial kingdom. We'll be able to see God's glory as it is. Um, and the reason that that 
is so helpful is because it unifies everything. Remember the problem with covenant theology? It starts at Adam, really. And it, and it ends at uh, really the end of the millennium when, when uh, finally the believers are, are preserved and saved. But what I said is, what about before Adam? What about in the eternity past? Um, and what dispensational theology says is the ultimate purpose for everything is God's glory that God wants to glorify Himself. And part of that okay, includes the redemption of believers. Okay, So we're not dismissing um, what, their, what their focus is, but we're just not making it the main focus when we look at the Scriptures. And so the unifying principle is that God will glorify Himself as He reveals His character. God will glorify Himself as He reveals His character. The second help in dispensational theology is that it recognizes the distinction between Israel and the church. Okay, it recognizes. Now we can go to the Scriptures, and as we'll see in a, just, just a bit here, we can have a, a single-meaning type approach to Scripture. We don't have to try to pull out double meanings. Okay, what does this mean? What do the nails in the tabernacle really mean? Okay, as my professor used to say, sometimes we over-spiritualize the Old Testament, try to make it applicable to the church when the nails were of the tabernacle were simply there to hold it together. Okay, We don't, we don't want to force too much. What, what kind of meaning do we see in the cross from the tabernacle? Okay, There are lots of allusions and uh, typology in, in the tabernacle and the temple and things, but, uh, but in many cases, uh, we don't have to over-spiritualize those. All right, number three, it provides a consistent... Uh, system of interpretation for the entire Bible. And this is what I was talking about before. That we can have a single meaning type approach to the Scriptures. Uh, I mentioned before Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, where Jesus said to the disciples, okay, preach to the Jews. Go out, take nothing with you, and go to the Jews, preach to them the gospel of the kingdom. But after they rejected him, after they rejected the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus said, Matthew chapter 28, after he was finally killed and he was resurrected, he said, now go into all the world. Okay? Make disciples of all nations. And so there is a distinction of how, of how uh, the Bible is unfolded, how the Bible is revealed. And if... if the only way to reconcile those two passages, Matthew 10 and Matthew 28, is you have to come away from it confused. That does not make sense. Go to the Jews. Go to everyone. Why the distinction? Okay, you come away confused. Or you can spiritualize okay, the Matthew chapter 10 passage and say, well, that had a certain meaning for the church today. Or the other option is to come away with it um, with a dispensational understanding. That is, that God has a systematic approach uh, to revealing Himself and He only had one meaning at one time. In other words, God had different purposes for the disciples because they were in a different era, a different, what we'll learn, a dis different dispensation. That's what that means, a different age, different era than we are. We're in a new age. We're, we're in the age of grace or the age of the church. All right, so the grid by which you interpret Scripture, okay, those lenses that you use when you interpret Scripture will 
determine your understanding of Scripture. If you have the wrong grid, if you have, uh, if you have a grid that doesn't work, that doesn't work in every case, then you're going to come away with wrong understanding of the Scripture. And then you're going to try to apply it to your life and it won't make sense. Okay, And that's why I think this class is so important. And, and so for the next 12 weeks, we're going to, to study this, how to understand this grid rightly. Okay? When we look at different sections of Scripture, hopefully with the, the Bible reading plan that I put out there a couple weeks ago, you started working through that this week. You are at a different period of time. Genesis and Matthew, I think, is where we're reading, right? We're at a different period of time there. And, and does, do, do these things mean something for us? In other words, were they intended directly for us or were they intended for a different people? And then um, as we go through the class, what you'll start to see is that it, it makes more sense of the Bible, but it also helps us to apply the Bible rightly. Okay, what I'm not suggesting is that Okay, because we're in the age of grace, which I believe starts at Pentecost and ends with the kingdom, or ends with the beginning of the kingdom, well, then, uh, then all the Old Testament is of no use to us. Okay, I hope you've seen from my preaching that uh, the Old Testament does have value for us, right? There has been, since I've been here, we've always, I've always taught through an Old Testament book. And that's because I believe it has value for us today. So we have to understand how to, how to understand the meaning before we can understand the application. And this, that's what this class is about. Understanding the meaning of the Scriptures in this type of way. Any questions or comments? Bill. Uh, yes, I would totally agree. I mean, that's ba- that's going to determine your interpretation of every verse of Scripture. If you have a if you have an understanding that Israel is the church or church is Israel, then that's going to require you to spiritualize things. Okay, how do you deal with uh, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk? Okay, how do you deal with that if if the church is Israel? Does that still apply to us today? Is that still meant for us today? There's all sorts of laws in the Old Testament that they have to either excuse or spiritualize. And that's, I think, what your point is. All right? Sandra? Yeah. Uh, well, they don't... See, see that's, not what, that's not what the Presbyterians are suggesting. They're automatically saved when they get infant baptized. That's not what they're suggesting. But what I was saying is that they believe that there is a special covenant with between God and unbelievers. And that's where the problem lies. We'll have to talk about that more to, to iron that out because that's a little bit fuzzy right now with the amount of information that I gave you. I understand that. But we'll talk about that as we go. All right, let me pray and we'll be dismissed to the service. Father, this is uh, uh, some way, in some ways uh, heavier water than, than uh, we're normally used to, but we pray that you would give us grace as we go through because we do want to understand your word rightly. We don't want to dismiss large chunks of Scripture because they are meant for someone else. We want to understand it rightly so that we can apply it rightly. 
And so I pray that you give us grace to, to do this. Help us to have the right uh, worldview as we look at um, the things around us based on what your word tells us. May the Bible be our ultimate authority. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.